All right, chapter number four, chapter number four of the book of Philippians. And uh, we're going to begin reading in verse number one, we'll read down to verse number five. Paul says, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I beseech Iodius and I beseech Syntyche that they may be of the same mind in the Lord. And I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. The overall theme of these verses of Scripture we're going to look at is this. You cannot defile a man who knows the power of positive thinking. Uh, There's been a lot of psychology preachers in the past that have sort of, I think, sullied this concept of positive thinking. And they've tried to attribute positive thinking, redemptive powers, regenerative powers. And I think there's been a knee-jerk reaction. You know, same way that Baptists are kind of, they're scared of shouting because they, because of the charismatics, you know. Uh, in the same way, I think that preachers are scared of talking about positive thinking because they don't want to be identified with, uh, you know, Peel and, and his crowd. But uh, I, I don't think we should dismiss it. Uh, I think there is power in keeping our thought life in the right place. Uh, Paul basically talks about two things here. First, he talks about thinking about one's spiritual life. He leads by example. Now I would remind you, the church at Philippi was not spotless. In fact, there was one nagging issue that had to be addressed. And he addresses it in the verses that we've read. But before he gets to it, I want you to notice his positive thoughts about the Philippians themselves. Notice his pleasure as he thought about how dear they were in verse number 1. And he says about four things about the Philippian believers. He calls them dearly beloved. In other words, they had a special place in his heart. He says they were longed for. Paul desired to be in their presence and he craved their fellowship. And he called them his joy. Now that meant something to a man sitting in prison. His joy. And then he called them his crown. In other words, he viewed them as being the reward that he enjoyed in this life. And the representation of the reward that he would receive in the life to come. Now, again, I would remind you, he's getting ready to deal with some unpleasantness. But before he deals with that unpleasantness, you know what he wants them to know? He wants them to know he loves them. That he loves them. That there is not an ounce of him that has any spite or frustration, if we can say it that way, or disgust with them. That he loves them dearly. But verse number two, notice his plea as he thought about how divided they were. He faces head on. I guess you could call it head on after four chapters. He faces head on the issue. Evidently at the church of Philippi there were two ladies. And uh, I don't know how to pronounce their name, but you don't either. And uh, if, if you pretend like you do, I'll just call you a liar. But one of these days we get to heaven, we'll know how it's pronounced. Uh, but I'm just going to call them Yodius and Syntyche. 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 Yes, that. Um, <laughs> might call her Mrs. S. I don't know. Uh, but evidently these two ladies, they had some kind of conflict. We do not know what it was over. Paul doesn't talk about what it was over. But it is apparent he calls them out by name and he commands them to be of one mind in the Lord. Now think about a couple things here. One, I would venture to say that whatever their problem was, it was personal. You say, why do you think that, preacher? Well, because if it wasn't, Paul would would have brought it out in the open. He would have dealt with it. Just as he did the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth involved the whole church. So Paul addressed the whole church about it. This had affected the whole church, but it doesn't seem as though it involved the whole church. Just to be honest, it was probably something small 
if I had to guess. Probably something slight. Probably something that most people gathered around them would consider to be of small importance. But it was causing a rift in this body. So what is, what is the remedy? We've talked about a lot of different things that inform this remedy. And Paul has been building to this moment, really throughout the entire book of Philippians. When you and I read the book of Philippians, there are a lot of other climactic points. Through chapter 3, through chapter... Man, I mean, you read through chapter 2 about the mind of Christ, and, and you read in chapter 3 about the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection. But for the church at Philippi, this verse was the climax. This was why the epistle was being written. For them, it was this moment of conflict. And what was the remedy for them that Paul had been building to? How could we sum up all the instruction that Paul has given to this church at Philippi in one simple phrase? I think Paul summed it up nicely when he said, Beseech them that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Same mind in the Lord. Can I tell you something? The only way we can be of the same mind is in the Lord. There's no other way to be in, uh, of the same mind. I've often marveled at, at the prospect of what it means to be part of a, of a body, of a local New Testament body, of a church. And how anything gets done. It's funny because some people look at the church and say, well, church is fuss and arguing this and that. If they knew church people the way I know church people, they'd be shocked anything gets done. Because you have a vast group of people with different perspectives, with different worldviews, with different opinions, with different preferences. And truthfully, if we're being honest, the thing that has knit us all together, now I, I value the friendship I have with every person in this room. But be honest with me tonight. What are the chances you and I would have formulated a friendship outside of the body of Christ? What are the chances we would have been in the same place? What are the chances we would have struck up a conversation? What are the chances we would have perceived anything in common? The reason we're knit together is because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the only way that there's unity in the church, the only way it's possible, the only way it'll ever happen is if we're of the same mind in the Lord. In other words, if I'm obeying the Lord, and if you're obeying the Lord, we'll be on the same page. We may not agree about everything, but there will be enough unity as we submit our spirit and our will and our desires to the Lord that there can be unity to accomplish anything that the Lord wills and desires. <laughs> Think about this little squabble and it goes to show you how far reaching these things can be. The shame of this, of this discord has lasted the ages. They probably thought it was no big deal. They probably thought it was, well, you know, I just, I'm mad at her. I can't believe she said this or did that or uh, lied about me or gossiped about me. And they probably didn't give it a ton of thought. They would have never thought that here 2,000 years later we'd be sitting in East Tennessee talking about these two ladies and how they couldn't get along. Let me tell you something. Our disunity, our discord can have far-reaching effects. And it can oftentimes outstrip and outlast what we ever intended to be and to do. So Paul gives his positive thoughts about the Philippians and then his positive thoughts about his partners. I love what he says here. Look down at uh, verse number 3. He says, I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow. And I think he's probably talking about Epaphroditus when he says that. Help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and with other my fellow laborers whose names are in the book of life. Now I'll go ahead and give you what the notes say. They're worth noting. They're worth taking notice of. He wants them to be helpful. He wants them to be happy. He says in verse 4 to rejoice in the Lord. Uh, and he wants them to be holy. And we'll look that, at that here in a moment. But in verse number 3, he recognizes and, and does a couple of brilliant things. One, 
He reaffirms about these women that they are beloved, that they are fellow laborers. He, he acknowledges that they are saved individuals, that their name is written in the book of life. He acknowledges that they have served faithfully in the past. You know what he's doing? He's having to instruct and correct these women. But he wants them to understand that he still loves them. He knows they're Christians. He knows they love the Lord. He knows they have a testimony. He knows they have a history. And then he tells Epaphroditus, help these women. Help these women. Two things that I think are important to note about that, or maybe the same thing, but for two different perspectives. One, when people have conflict, and when that conflict is dragged out in the open, oftentimes there is embarrassment and shame that can sometimes be crippling. I, I, would, I would never dare name names, but I'll tell you this, in ten years of pastoring, I have known of, of situations where people have acted so outrageously and then when they came to themselves, they were so ashamed of how they behaved that they walked out and never came back. And they were not mad at anyone. They were embarrassed. They were embarrassed. Listen, we need to have not just the humility to acknowledge when we've done something wrong, but the humility to be willing to move past it and work through it and keep on going forward for the Lord and serving the Lord. Sometimes this happens and we have a compulsion and a responsibility as believers to help them in that. To encourage them in that, to remind them that we are human just like they are human, that this is part of the reason I talk all the time. You're probably sick of hearing me talk about how we're just a church full of broken people. We're just a church full of, uh, of sinners, of messed up people with baggage and problems and flaws and faults and character flaws. You know why? You know why that's so important? Because I never want somebody sitting out in the pew thinking they're sitting in a church full of perfect people and they're the only one that's messed up. We're all messed up. And sometimes part of helping people is helping them to realize that there is life after these mistakes. He wants them to be helpful. He wants them to be happy. He says, don't hang your head low. Rejoice. And then it's like he knows. He knows. Uh, you ever have one of those moments where, you know, your parent, like, corrected you, like, fussed at you, and you made a funny face at them, and they, then they said, don't make that funny face, and they weren't even looking at you? You ever have one of those moments where they just have a, uh, some kind of a psychic episode? That's what Paul does here. He says, rejoice. And he can hear the Philippians rolling their eyes. Uh, he said, again I say, rejoice. Don't hang your head low. Listen, I know it's hard. I, I know you've got to move past this and move through it. But the way you're going to do it is not by looking on the downside, but looking on the upside. He wants them to be happy. He wants them to be holy. Verse number 5, he says, let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. The word moderation there, it means yieldedness. Uh, a good example of this was Abraham. Uh, whenever Abraham and Lot were dwelling together, and uh, their, their herds got too big to dwell in the same place, and their, their, their herdsmen and, and their, you know, their, their cattle drivers were starting to argue and fuss and get into disputes one with another. And Abraham, he goes to Lot, and he says, that, that he says uh, let there be no strife between us and thee. The land is, is not great enough. And he, he gives the right away. He yields to Lot, even though he was the older man and, and should have had the choice. He says, you pick whatever area you want, and you can have that land, and I'll go and I'll take the other land. That's moderation, yieldedness, grace in the pursuit of peace. He says, let your moderation be known. And this is why he says the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Who wants to get caught by the Lord in an argument with somebody? I remember, and I don't have time to tell this, but I'm going to. Um, 
because I'm because you've been so patient and so you've exhibited your patience to me. Uh, I remember one time me me and mom and dad we don't do well in stressful situations and um, just for a lot of reasons. Me and mom are too much alike. And that's why me and mom don't get along sometimes, and me and mom are too much alike, and that's why me and dad don't get along sometimes. And, um, and in, in stressful situations, um, especially, you know, just, I don't know, we just both short fuses all around. And when we were buying our house, I won't go into all the history of it, but when we were buying our house, we bought it from an individual. And so we were able to go into the house. Fairly often, they were living in Florida, and they gave us keys, so we kind of watched the place while we got all the paperwork through and everything. And so we weren't really supposed to necessarily just be hanging out at the house, but if we needed to go over there for something, we could. So one day we decide that we're going to go over there. Now, the people that own this house are in Florida. They're not up in Tennessee. But we decide we're going to go over and we're going to look at the house. So we go over and we're walking through the basement. We have drop tile ceilings in the basement, you know, the, the whatever the, the particle board tiles or whatever they are. And, uh, and one, of the, one of the ceiling tiles had a water spot on it. And mom says, uh, she says, look at that water spot up there. I said, yeah, it's, it's fine. We'll, you know, we'll deal with that later. She said, well, I wonder if that's fresh. I said, mom, it don't matter if it's fresh or not. We'll replace it. It's no big deal. She said, well, I just wonder if there's still a leak. I said, mom, don't worry about it. And then dad says, I ain't going to sit here and listen to y'all argue, you know. And, and, uh, and so we start getting into it with, with, with one another. And then mom decides she's going to get that ceiling tile down. And so it's getting heated, and she she goes to move that ceiling tile, and Dad's fussing at her because she's not listening, and fussing at me because I'm fussing, and then she drops the ceiling tile, and it breaks on the floor, and then we're all into a big thing, and everybody's yelling, and everybody's hollering, and then in walks these people from Florida to check on their house. Here we are in this house that does not belong to us, having a straight up, I'm talking about redneck, hillbilly, white trash argument over a broken ceiling tile that does not belong to us. We all just sort of stopped and looked at each other. A little moderation might have gone a long way that night. Because I'll tell you this, man, it was embarrassing whenever he walked in and caught us in that argument. Do you want to be caught? Listen, why, why would we ever want when the Lord returns for him to catch us in a fussing, fighting, feuding mood with other Christians? He says, listen, he wants them to be holy. He, he, he talks about thinking about one's secular life. In other words, temporal needs. Look at verse number 6. He says, be careful for nothing. That's how we deal with our worries in this secular life. I wish I had about 10 years to deal with this, but I'll just give you a simple exposition. The word careful here means anxious or worried. It doesn't mean cautious. It means anxious or worried. And we might, we might not, but the Lord says here... Uh, be careful for nothing. Don't allow anxiousness to be the driving force in your life and the decisions that you're making. Uh, make the conscious decision. Has it ever dawned on you that we make a conscious decision to worry? We do. We make a conscious decision to worry. We don't like to frame it that way. But do you know that every problem we have, we're going to meet it in one of two ways, typically speaking. We're going to meet it through prayer or we're going to meet it through worry. And those two things, I found this to be true, that very rarely can we pray and worry at the same time. We might go from praying to worrying or from worrying to praying. We can't do both at the same time. He says, do not allow anxiousness to be the driving force. Be careful for nothing. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. I tell people all the time, uh, sometimes when I'm, you know, somebody will say, well, call me when you get there. I don't want to worry. And I'll say, well, don't worry. Call. Don't worry. Call. In other words, don't just sit around and worry about me. I got a phone. You got a phone. Pick it up. Dial me and call. On the same way, you know what I think the Lord says? Don't worry. Call. Don't worry, call. Just call me. Talk to me. 
Don't sit around and worry. Instead, reach out to me. Call to me. Pray to me. He talks about our worries, and then he talks about our wants. Man, this is fascinating. Look at verse 6. He says, but, so be careful for nothing. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. Instead, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Look at this phrase. Let your requests be made known unto God. Didn't Christ himself say that your Father in heaven knoweth what you have need of before you ask? In other words, it's not that, that, how do I say this the right way? It's not that God needs to know our needs. It's that our needs need to be made known unto him. In other words, it's not that we pray so that we can inform God. But it's that God has chosen and ordained prayer as the means of our communication with him and and of, uh, and of our development of our faith and our spiritual well-being. Prayer is the means of God growing our faith. So he says, don't worry. Instead, guard your, your, your thoughts and do so by choosing. Don't worry. Pray instead. Then he talks about thinking about one's secret life. Now, I know that looks like a lot of outline, but we're going to walk through it real quick. You watch and see this. Notice what Paul shared with the Philippians. Look at verse number 7 with me. He says, And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. He shares within the secret of a guarded thought life. The word keep there, it literally it's a military term. It means to be kept with a garrison or to be taken into custody of. In other words, when Satan desires to, to entrap and ensnare our minds and to fill our minds with anxious and, and unbelieving thoughts, that the peace of God has the ability to station itself between us and the, the attacks of Satan and to defend us like a garrison of troops would do. I would remind you there's three kinds of peace relating to God. In the Word of God, there is peace in God, there is peace with God, and then there is the peace of God. The peace of God, in other words, is the peace that God enjoys that we appropriate by leaning effectually upon Him. You don't just have the peace of God because you are a Christian. You have peace with God, you have peace in God, but you only have the peace of God. If you allow peace to reign and rule in your hearts in Christ Jesus, as Paul exhorted. So in other words, the secret uh, that Paul shares with them is of a guarded thought life. We allow the reality of God's sovereignty, of His authority, of His omnipotence, of His omniscience to reign in our hearts and minds. Well, how could we ever worry about anything knowing that the God of glory and the God of creation is our Father? cares about us, loves us. How could we ever worry about anything recognizing that our future is intertwined with God's future and that He has a vested interest in our well-being? In other words, this was the great truth that I think was communicated to the disciples when the boat was being tossed upon the waves in the Sea of Galilee and they began to be afraid that they would sink. Christ looked at them and said, uh, Why, you know, O ye of little faith, That boat was not going to sink. You know why? Because the Son of God was on it. It wasn't that it wasn't going to sink because they were on it. It wasn't that it wasn't going to sink because boats never sink. Boats sink all the time. It wasn't going to sink because the Son of God was on it. He he was on a a collision course with Calvary. He was on a path to to Golgotha. And he wasn't going to die in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. So as long as he was in the boat, they didn't have to worry about the boat sinking. Well, listen, as long as your life is in the hands of God, you don't have to worry about things falling apart. Or if they do, you can know they've fallen apart providentially, not incidentally or accidentally or tragically. But they've done so because God has allowed it. Then he talks about the secret of a guided thought life. 
In other words, look at verse number 8. He says, finally, brethren. There we, we get that again, don't we? He's wrapping it up now. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, uh, whatsoever things are pure or are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. I, I want to just mention these things, but then I want to go back to a broader point. They basically fall into two categories. First is that which promotes inner character. In other words, we ought to think on things that, that help us to have confidence in God. First, he talks about excluding that which is false. He says, true. Think on things that are true. We live in a world that is filled with deceit, propaganda, and spin. And we can live on a steady diet of things that are untrue or barely true. We ought to instead as believers choose that which is true. Uh, there is a great amount of energy spent today running around trying to study every single false doctrine and heresy in a pursuit of guarding uh, the Christian against them. But that's not how Paul addressed those things. When he was addressing a doctrinal heresy, he said very little about the, the false teaching, the false doctrine of the people that he was guarding against. He instead shined a light on the truth of Scripture. I like what one commentator said. It's like these people that are investigators for counterfeit money, the Treasury Department. They don't study every single tactic of the counterfeiters. Instead, they study every single detail of true currency. They don't have to know everything that the counterfeiters are going to pull. They just have to know what true currency looks like. In the same way, we need to get our mind on that which is true, excluding that which is false. He says extolling that which is fine. He says whatsoever things are honest means that which is honorable, that which is, is noble. Uh, the Word of God has a, a beautiful way of, of illustrating this. You know, there are some heavy and, and hard and ugly things that are detailed in the Word of God. Uh, some, I, I mean, the, the, the very depths, the very dregs of human depravity is put on display. But it is always done in a tactful way. One of the things that is common in literature and entertainment today is what's called realism. And you see this uh, every time they put nudity or, or foul language or, or gratuitous violence in any movie or any show, they'll say it's for realism's sake, as though that excuses it. And they say, well, it's because we're trying to make it as real as possible, because after all, that's how the real world is. Listen, as Christians, we need to guard our minds against that garbage. Uh, we don't have to consume all that stuff. Our standard ought to be that which is honest, that which is honorable, that which is noble. Uh, it was said one time that Stonewall Jackson made this statement about Scripture. Uh, he said that, that the Word of God gives a perfect template for filling out battle reports. And he talked about how in, in the Old Testament, when a battle took place, there was always great attention given to detail concerning what was, uh, took place and what transpired. But there was never a focus on gory details and ugliness. In other words, there was always an honorable way that things were dealt with. So we ought to extol that which is fine. We ought to exalt that which is fair. He says, whatsoever things are just. A lot of injustice in the world today. We ought to focus on what's right, not on what's wrong all the time. And then we see thoughts that promote inner cleanliness. And they uh, fall into three categories. He says, whatsoever things are pure. In other words, we ought to exclude that which besmirches. We ought to keep our focus on clean things, meaning spiritually clean things. Then he says, that which is lovely, meaning that which beautifies, that which, which, uh, which sort of, uh, you know, like, like silver apples fitted in golden frames, that which beautifies, that which enriches us, that which is beneficial to us. 
And then that which uh, builds. We ought to exalt that which builds. That which is of good report. There's a lot of things that just very simply they don't build us up. They tear us down. And they may not be wrong in their substance, but a steady diet of them will get us discouraged and get our mind in the dumps. Now here's what I want to back up and say, the overall thing. Notice that all these are choices. Paul says, you choose what to put in your mind. Nobody else does. You choose. You know, we can really only think of one thing at a time, generally speaking. We can choose to think of that which is good, and by doing that we exclude thinking of that which is evil. In other words, the way to keep evil thoughts out of our mind is not by sheer will, but it's by filling our mind with that which is acceptable, that which is righteous, that which is good. So God's peace requires our active cooperation and participation. A lot of us want to say, Lord, give me peace. And then we fill our mind with every thought of worry, every thought of anxiety, every thought of the worst possible outcome, every thought of every bit of what's wrong in the world, what's wicked in the world, what's evil in the world. We, we pollute our minds with that stuff and then say, all right, God, give me peace. Now, listen, we've got to get that trash out of our minds. And that's, that, that's the exhortation that is given there. He says, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Notice finally what Paul showed to the Philippians. Look at verse number 9. He says, those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. He pointed to his verbal example. He says, in other words, the truth that you have been taught, employ those things. Put the truth of the Word of God into practice, into action, if you want peace in your life. You can't disregard the plain truth of the Word of God and the exhortation of Scripture and expect that you'll enjoy the peace of God in your life. No, listen, hey, uh, perfect peace have they which love thy law. Nothing shall offend them. Uh, thou will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. We need to get our minds focused on the Lord. He talks about his verbal example, but then his visual example. He says, that which you have heard and seen. And I wrote this down. It's the last thing I'll say. Paul had proven the concept. There he sits in a prison cell, but he's rejoicing. There he sits waiting to be executed, but he's rejoicing. There he's sitting with a cloud hanging over his mind, but a rainbow shining in his soul. Because he has chosen to fill his mind with that which glorifies the Lord, that which beautifies the, the, the truth of Scripture, that which galvanizes what he knows to be true in God. He's got his mind off of his problems and on the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, he's able to say with full authenticity and power, rejoice in the Lord, I say. And again, I say rejoice.